0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Greg Lukionoff. Greg is the CEO of FIRE, which has now changed from freedom of individual rights in education to freedom of individual rights in expression. Hi, Greg. Thank you for coming on.
1: It's actually foundation for individual oh, rights. Uh, foundation. Uh, in sorry, education. sorry. Um, and we are now the foundation for individual rights and expression. Yeah. Now, people have pointed out that we're not really like a foundation because usually, foundation means like a like a like a grant making institution. Mm-hmm. Then again, we do actually do the free inquiry grant now, so maybe it's more accurate than it used to be. But yeah, we we get the freedom from you know, like the freedom uh, start quite a bit. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. I, oh, no, I, no, no. I, 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 I don't know why I got that stuck in my head. Um, oh, everybody does. The, the first question I want to ask you, because I'd asked someone this from the UK and I mm-hmm. want your take on it. Um, so I mean, up in Canada. So unfortunately we don't have the first amendment, which I think is like probably one of the best written laws for expression. But do people in the States kind of always fall back on the first, first amendment? Like, like in the UK, you have the tradition of free speech You know, you have Milton mm-hmm. and Bill and all these people and where, you know, where a lot of these ideas came from, but you don't have laws codifying it. Whereas right. in the US, you have this law that codifies it. And, you know, it really started coming through in the 20th century when they had all these cases coming up. So do people in the, is that kind of a limiting thing where people said, oh, well, we're protected by law, so we don't really have to care about free speech. Whereas in the UK, it was more of trying to protect a tradition, like you know, but there's no law protecting them from
1: speech. Yeah. I, I I remember having this, my, my mom's British and I, and I spent a lot of time over there. And I remember having this um, sort of mini debate with um, Brendan O'Neill from Spiked mm-hmm. in my backyard in Brooklyn in like 2009 or 2010. And, and there's this idea that free speech is better protected in Britain than it is in the United States because it's a, it's a tradition in, the, in in Britain that goes back a, a long way. And in the U S it's um, we tend to think immediately just of the first amendment, which doesn't, you know, which is the law. And it doesn't actually apply to non-state actors with some exceptions. Um, and, you know, I, I made the argument that actually, you know, ideally you, you want both free speech culture and, and free speech law. But if I had to choose between the two, um, well, no, I'm not really sure I could really choose between the two, but it's good to have both um, because uh, you need the First Amendment when cultures go through a panic. Um, and, you know, I remember Brendan saying like, oh, yeah, but people just hide behind the First Amendment. I'm like, when that panic sets in, I'm glad they have somewhere to hide um, that, that there's that there's something um, that lets you get through the moment when, when you're panicking. And it should be understood that, that when we talk about these panics, these these panics are predictable parts of human life. You know, they happen every, you know, every five years, maybe every 10 years. And I hate to think of what would happen to the First Amendment, um, what would happen to our, to, to our free speech law if we didn't have such a strong protection during COVID. I, I think there would have been like aggressive attempts to make, uh, uh, to, to pass an, anti-misinformation laws and probably clamping down. And, sending people to jail for, in some cases, people who said things that were later proved to be pretty much accurate.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the, okay, the, like I said, we don't have it in Canada. So, I mean, I can appreciate the law because we're going through it now with our government. So before they had the election in 2020, um, they had an election in 2019, it was a minority government. So they called another one in 2020 and, and they were putting in through two laws uh, one had passed through the uh, House of Commons was, and had gone up to the Senate. The other one was still being debated in the House of Commons. And the first one was, um, I'd have to go back and look at it, but it's basically it came down to that if I was offended by something that you posted online, I could just make that claim and you could face up to $75,000 in fines and six months house arrest based on my offense of it. And then the other law was uh, they, they're... Pushing it towards oh we're protecting Canadian content, mm-hmm. the Canadian government is going to decide what gets boosted, what doesn't get boosted. They're going to decide on they want to control like YouTube and you know video streaming apps and things like that. Where wow. and they want to push Canadian content. So and if you go deeper into it, there's some some censorship in there as well. Mm-hmm. So I mean we have had this coming through, and it's all you know like the 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 one where the offense one that was all under, you know, the auspices of pe- keeping people safe. And this one is just protecting Canadian content. So, I mean, I really wish we had that, but unfortunately in Canada, we don't seem to have the tradition of free speech that they did in the UK, even though yeah. you know, we were, we're part of the Commonwealth. We were more closely linked to the UK than you know the U S was. We didn't actually throw them. you know, We didn't have a revolution against them mm-hmm. and we don't have the laws that the U S does. So, I mean, I see it here and I'm, I wish we had one or the other. Yeah. Uh, we honestly don't seem to.
1: Yeah, now the situation for free speech in Canada and I I'm reading this book um by uh Lee Bollinger um uh, who's the president of Columbia which by the way finished dead last of 212 schools that we that um, did polls about free speech. A genuine surprise to me. I didn't think it was going to actually. I didn't think it was going to do great, but dead last. I didn't see coming. And Jeff Stone, someone who I do respect, um, but they've done a series of books of essays by um, honestly just very well known, well established. No matter you know how good their opinions are and stuff on, on freedom of speech issues, their their um, their free speech century um, book was just not. Good, Um, And now they're doing one on social media. And the extent to which sort of like the American elite um, think that everywhere but the United States has things right on free speech. For those of us who, you know, my my dad grew up in Yugoslavia, my mother's British, I've traveled a lot. it, it, It just... It just kind of blows me away because it's kind of like and, and you know mentioning canada as, as a model that we could uh follow and i'm like are, are you nuts like, like like the situation for free speech in, in canada is
0: terrible oh it's awful um no but I, I don't want to digress too far into canada but you'd you mentioned your list like and I, and I know fire has been doing this for a while uh, i mean what 20 plus years now um
1: well, we we, we added a, a really important element to it a couple of years ago. Um, initially, the way we would do, um, uh, starting way back in two thousand seven, we would do an annual report. I mean, actually, the, the project itself started well, like before I even got to fire in two thousand one, and there's not a there's not a lot of time. In Fire's existence before I got there, because I, I joined in 2001 and it was founded in 99, um, and I was originally the legal director. And I actually had to evaluate the speech codes on on university campus uh, myself, um, and that wasn't rigorous enough for me. So we we, we had to. Uh, Wait until we had like a dedicated lawyer. In this case, Samantha Harris was a dedicated lawyer and she's very meticulous. And so we started publishing our take on their uh, speech codes about whether or not we thought they stood up to First Amendment muster back in 2007. Um, and at first, we found about 79% of schools had laughably unconstitutional codes, even if they were, you know, bound by the First Amendment and they were flat out illegal. Then we added something in 2012, which I thought was essential, which is our worst schools for free speech list that we do every year um, based on really bad incidents to really call schools out for that. But the big, but the game changer was I think 2019 was when we started working with College Pulse and could um, evaluate. Um, we, we, we actually could poll students directly about what they think about the atmosphere for free speech on their campuses are. And that's when we started doing a um, like a like a, a, a ranking from like first to last. Uh, and University of Chicago finished first again this year, which, you know, I almost don't like because it's so predictable. Predictable, mm-hmm. um, and and we were suspicious of it when it first came through. But you know, like they, they really do work towards that. And the dead last this year were Columbia, like I mentioned, uh, Penn. You know, the the only like high ranking um, liberal arts college in the United States was actually Claremont McKenna, which has made a real effort to to, to do better on free speech since a really a couple really embarrassing uh, things happened, including uh, with Heather McDonald, um, who, who tried to speak there you know, uh, maybe six seven years ago.
0: Um, okay, so like I've been, okay. So, you know, we were talking just a little before, so I was out of the country for 12 years that I was living in a remote community, but when I got back to Canada, you know, I left in 2002, I got back in 2014, you know, and when I left, it was, you know, even though Canada is not great on free speech, it was still that, you know, I don't like what, I don't agree with what you say, but I'll respect your right to say it. And when I got back, I mean, I was basically seeing de facto blasphemy laws. Yeah, And then I was just, I, I mean, I got called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam, and that that's a lot of it in, around 2014 was, you know, shutting down speech because of what you said about, said about Islam, or that's what I saw in my little circles. Um, and so I started looking into it. But then I saw what was going on, on campus. Now, my worry about this is, Especially when you read something like uh, Jonathan Roux's book, uh, Kindly Inquisitors, and you see how far back this really goes. I mean, you can go even further back than that, but I was like, okay, so you've had, you know, at that point, I said, okay, you have had 15 years where this has been growing on campus. Now you're seeing it come off into real life. Yeah. Like, I don't like speech codes, and we can get into these maybe later, but like, I don't like you know, a lot of the laws coming out, like, especially that, uh, like, I like where they might be coming from, like, their intentions might be good, but what they're doing is bad. Like the stop woke act in Florida and things like that. If the colleges themselves are pushing out this kind of idea. And if this is being pushed on the universities as these people graduate and get into life. Yeah. That culture is going to die out so that at one point or other, someone could say, well, we do need to change the first amendment. We do need to change this law because it's, it's no longer quote unquote, a good (coughs) law. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that, there's my concern from it and then you know the other side of it is i i worry about the overreactions like the overcorrections which i think some of these you know like call them anti crt laws or whatever though these laws are overcorrections to an actual problem but you know it's not going about it the right way
1: yeah yeah so we were talking about the um stop woke act in particular in florida um, which was a law applied to K through twelve to 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 ban this, the the teaching of quote unquote divisive concepts, but uh, what d- distinguishes it is it also applies to higher education, and we've sued against that because we think there's absolutely no I mean there's absolutely no question you know at least on the on existing law that this is laughably unconstitutional. Meanwhile, you know, and we've definitely had some people. Um, you know, like fire is the most nonpartisan organization out there. So sometimes you'll have conservatives feel like we betrayed them. It's like, sorry, it's like, that's, that's not the way we work. We, we, we always <laughs> take, we, we, we call balls and strikes just like we see them, even if that means we lose donors over it and always have. Um, but when it comes to that way of trying to reform higher ed, I also think it's a dead end. I mean, one, it's against the law. Um, so it's not going to work anyway. But two, the one thing that you want to avoid is that a lot of the worst activists you know among the administrations on, on American college campuses um, they love an opportunity to say, you know, we're the real victims here, we're the ones who are really under threat. And this is exactly what's happened due to, due to these laws is you have you know organizations saying that, and, and now when I talk about, you know, threats from the left on campus, immediately people, well, one, they just want to know, like, where were we in HB7? I'm like, we're suing against it. But they assume we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not um, because and they don't sometimes they don't even bother to, 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 to check it. Um, but it's given them an excuse to not think about, you know, problems on their own campus. Meanwhile. I don't think that even if they were constitutional, these kind of laws would make much of a difference anyway, because it, it, they, there are so many ways to sort of once you have that, the, the kind of political um, uh, supermajority that you have on campus where it's it, it's incredibly politically homogenous, um, it, it's going to lead to ideological problems, you know, and, and uh, keep perpetuating itself. And it's going to get worse, by the way, on campus. Um, when I think about what could actually be done that actually might make a difference, is things that, you know, um, allow other ways that uh, young people can prove they're the best and the brightest without going to college um, or some alternative to it. I also think we have to massively um, debureaucratize American higher education. I think it's outrageous that you have this. Um, Hue and cry appropriately from the fact that you have Americans who are saddled with tremendous amounts of debt um, of, of university debt, and I and I I I get them um, being resentful and angry about this uh, because you know their their parents and their grandparents certainly didn't have to do anything like that. They they, they could they could pay for college, you know, by by working a working an outside job. At, you know, at one point in American history. But the fact that none of that anger is directed towards higher education it, itself is 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 really really blows me away. It's kind of like no. So this was an industry that has become incredibly wealthy, incredibly influential, um, employs a huge number of people, many of whom I don't believe they they need at all. But um, but the focus doesn't. They, they seem to be completely teflon on this stuff, and it's like no like this is why forgiving student debt w- w- uh, the way we did was a mistake uh, and it wasn't an unintentional mistake the de- the democrats and modern higher ed are very simpatico um, and there was no discussion uh, meaningfully at least of reducing the actual expense side. There was, it's funny. I, I watched a couple of people kind of flail when I when I made this point, and they're like, well, no, there was, Biden was talking about keeping costs down. I'm like, no, no, they were, he was talking about keeping costs down to consumers, which is of course a laudable goal. Nothing about actually decreasing um, how expensive uh, the institutions themselves are, and I would like—I think that uh, we should be looking for ways to to start decreasing the expensiveness of higher education. You know, on uh, on their side, not just not just the cost. And I think that a university that was less reliant on administrators, less reliant on uh, uh, on uh the the bureaucracy would actually be almost by default a, a much freer place than it, than we currently see because oh, still a big part of the threat actually comes from administrators themselves.
0: yeah, I mean that's one of the things with the with the colleges i I always you know like i the example I use is if the physics department goes into the English department and says you're not doing English correctly, the English mm-hmm. department's going to laugh at them yeah and you know same thing if the english department comes to the physics department and says you're not doing physics correctly and you know rightfully so they're going to laugh at them but if an administrator who has a phd in you know gender studies or sociology focusing on critical race theory or whatever or anti-racism and comes in and says well physics department is racist mm-hmm. they look at that phd and it's like well this person's got you know earned knowledge blah 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 blah. we have to respect them and it's it's like the university never even checked themselves like like I, I Okay, A, I don't want to limit what you, you know, if a university wants to have a chair in alchemy, go ahead. You know, you're going to be laughed out of, you know, you know people are going to laugh at you, but that alchemy chair should not be then allowed to dictate policy on how that school runs science. And I yeah. think it's the same thing with a lot of these studies courses and like, you know, the anti-racism and whatever, like. Universities haven't paid attention to themselves. They've kind of siloed themselves off and they're just assuming that everyone has the best intentions and they're just kind of letting it go. And it's like, like my way of approaching it would be, okay, let's try to get alumni and students and whatever push the university to say, okay, these people aren't credible. Let's not use their theories to create policy for the university, Mm. you know, which I think would be a good way to go about it. And, but it shouldn't come through force of law right
1: yeah the um i think about like what would actually make some of the biggest difference and i and i think that um I, i i've advocated for something where if students were taking ap classes and and taking those ap exams if they had both a Pass and a high pass, like, like, um, where essentially, and then you'd be invited back, you know, to, to do the next level of AP exams. And if you get a high pass, you get invited to like super university, where it's, you know, um, uh, I, I, I think just being able to, um, get at some of the best and brightest and hardest working kids, um, by itself, having something that could really credential them, uh, would scare the living daylights out of. Uh, american elite higher education where a lot of the problems we see not just uh, among um uh, college graduates but societally uh, uh and the funny thing is pe- people were pointing out that this was coming you know as early as the 80s saying, saying that this is getting much too ideological um uh you, you know it's much too activist and of course at the time you know campus was like no no we don't we don't um, promote activism. And uh, and of course, now they don't even bother to make that argument. Like, like that argument's almost entirely fallen out because it's like, oh yeah, well, sure, we do that. Um, and I think that we have to be creative in ways to um, uh, figure out, uh, to, to, to allow, um, to, to, to sort of put American higher education uh, in a situation where they actually feel like they have to compete again for their uh, for their incredible privilege.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, you know, Harvard kind of takes it for granted that, oh, everyone wants to come to Harvard because you get the Harvard degree. But I mean, you know, some of the stuff coming out of Harvard is kind of laughable. Like I can't remember if it was Harvard or Cornell that put out that thing about correct grammar being racist or something like that. And it just, okay. There's always been, you know, I, I went to college and university in the late eighties, early nineties. There's always been silly courses and, Everyone knew. Okay, if you want an easy A, if you want to blow off class for this semester, take this one because it's you know it's a pretty much of a joke or whatever, right? They've always had those silly things, but no one gave them credence. But now we're again we're lending credence to these things that that we shouldn't. And
1: and it's and I and I think a lot of the stuff that we're doing currently in the United States um, when it comes to higher ed, like dropping. Um, standardized tests, it's like, oh great. So you want to further embed the class privilege of overwhelmingly upper class white progressives, like, like which I think is not uh, unintentional. I, I, think that, I think there's a sense that kind of um these tests keep uh you know privileged kids out. And that's one of the reasons why they why they want them to go. It's not it like nominally it's about getting um more minority applicants in there. But guess what? standardized tests were put there to do they they were put they were originally the idea was to get promising um poor people like in into higher ed and that's one of the reasons why like a lot of you know on on twitter at least in the neighborhoods that, that i hang out and a lot of us who are also um, i'm a first generation american my parents are immigrants um saying like no that actually that's why i'm successful. It, it is that it turned out I was weirdly good at one of these tests and, and they had to let me into these upper class institutions like Stanford or didn't have to, but it definitely allowed me to get, get noticed by places like that. And getting rid of it, it's it, it it's just so it's so self-serving and backwards um that it uh it at least opens the opportunity though is, is I feel like I think it's likely That um, affirmative action is probably going to be overturned in the United States, at least with regard to higher education, sometime in like the next year. And I think that, um, and and and, you know, like, and I think you can actually have a defense of affirmative action if you base on what Backey actually said back in the seventies. But regardless of what what you think about it, I think that some schools should basically be like, okay, well, if these other schools are going to be. Striving in every way um, uh, away from a, a standardized test. I think like a couple schools that are kind of like, well, actually, we're going to have in our charter that we're going to establish that you can only um, accept accept students on the basis of standardized tests and and grades. I think that those schools are going to find that suddenly their graduates um, are greeted with a lot more. Um, uh, excitement by, you know, the big corporate uh, powers that be um, than ever
0: before. Yeah, I mean, also, like when you mentioned this, like I, I think of uh, Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia because I was kind of following that case uh, closely because I knew Austria and, what, and knew what happened Astra, there? So they did the same thing. They got rid of standardized testing and they, want, they wanted to make it, you know, like the, so they, it was, entrance was no longer on testing. Entrance was no longer on, on merit and they wanted to oh same thing we want to have more more black students and hispanic students and sure enough what happened was the number of white students went up the number of asian students went down and i believe the black students went up slightly like a percent or two more but it was massively increased in white students
1: shock upon shock
0: yeah and you know i mean i saw some of the meetings because like i said Osha was posting a lot of these i mean the again, a lot of this awful stuff that's coming out now and it's, I mean, just pure racism. It's, Oh, well, you're white adjacent because you're Asian and, and things like that. And it's just like, you know, you don't have the right to speak because you're not quite oppressed enough. Like I'd mentioned over corrections, but again, I, I'm looking at this like maybe in a longer view, but if you look at places like Iran or the former Soviet Union, you mentioned Yugoslavia, like I'd worked in Bosnia for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, any place that's had authoritarian governments and has had government control of speech conspiracy theories, like just start growing like wheat. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing here. Like since I came back, I've just been seeing one kind of curtailing on speech. It's like, Oh, we have to stop these conspiracy theories. I'm like, but you're creating more Mm -hmm. like now. Like the, uh, the example I'll use is COVID. It's just, I mean, there were people who were, Kicked off Twitter because they said something, and then like six months later or a year later, whatever they said turned out to be true. The person might be a crank and a nut, fine, but the thing you kicked them off for was true.
1: Well, let, let's take Jennifer say, you know, at, yeah. at, at Levi's, like whose yeah. point was that um, shutting down schools is going to be disastrous for education. Everybody yeah. agrees with that now. Um, it, 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 it's going to lead to huge gaps for for, for younger people. Um, I didn't actually realize, like I thought she was like an anti-vaxxer. Like when I first went to talk to her, realized that what she said was that got her fired from Levi's, you know, um, was what's considered common knowledge now. and And the extent to which, This is a major theme of of a book I'm working on with uh, 22-year-old Wunderkind, um, Ricky Schlott, uh, called, (laughs) very creatively, Canceling of the American Mind. Um, I I, I I actually realized we didn't mention this before. I'm the co-author of a book called Coddling of the American Mind with my friend Jonathan Haidt, which came out in 2018. And making the point that when you create a situation in which you know that experts can actually face serious repercussions um, or be fired, uh, for having the wrong opinion, um, you take a sledgehammer to the credibility of uh, of um, of experts, uh, and it leads to a situation where if the American public can uh, can correctly say, "Wow, wait a second, I know that you're finding out things that sound, you know, to confirm, you know, upper class, overwhelmingly white, progressive ideas." um that uh when you find research that confirms that it's like okay what well, but could you even say anything would would you even feel free to say anything contrary to that like, like if you found something that that didn't uh, map, map, map with that would you actually be willing to even tell us and if there's any answer that indicates well maybe not um that's disastrous and meanwhile what the the perverse thing that it creates is it creates and and people on the left should be worried about this Is that it creates a situation in which things that just seem to confirm the the lefty white upper class worldview um, get treated with a fair amount of suspicion by the rest of the United States. And it's only the things that actually contradict it because it would have to be like a statement uh, uh, against interest. Essentially, like you would have to be like Roland Fryer coming out and saying, um, you know, my research indicates that actually maybe uh, African-Americans aren't disproportionately uh, targeted. Meanwhile, what what what's so striking to me about about that is like the finding that Roland Fryer found was that uh, American police shoot too many people, um, which is of course should be treated as ghastly and horrifying um, by, by everyone. But but partially because we have this very homogeneous, and and I keep on I, I keep on stressing the fact that like this is like a white upper class um, because it comes out in the data, the, the Hidden Tribe Survey, like the extent like found that the um seven percent that they call progressive activists um, uh, were the um and like the upper seven percent were the most educated and the wealthiest and most racially homogenous group in the United States, with one exception, the far right. And this has been my experience too, that that essentially um like when I when I got to when I lived in Stanford and when I when I when I when I lived in San Francisco and w- was in Silicon Valley, like the the, the wokest of the woke were uh, rich white dudes or 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 or, or girls like and it still when I have these arguments on Twitter, like how often it's like, okay, rich white dude like who who to whom this is very important and claims to speak for the people, you should probably recognize the fact that if you look at the past 10 years the shift in attitude um it, it, in terms of becoming more you know what, what Matty iglesias cleverly calls the great awakening it's overwhelmingly it, it's something that hit upper class white people it, it there hasn't been a, a similar massive shift in attitudes among uh a, a
0: black and brown people yeah i mean okay like i'll t- again take muslims up until george bush jr muslims were very republican voting Block in the United States. I mean, it's it's not a huge population, anyways, but you know they were largely a Republican voting block, and now you might see a swing back in that direction. Like, I mean, you're just seeing what was going on in, uh, I believe, it was in Michigan recently, where a bunch of Muslim parents were out speaking out against some of the books that were being you know used in schools and stuff like that. Um, actually, speaking about that, I just kind of I was wanted to ask you about this because I've been reading a lot of this and. So I'm reading from teachers and I'm reading from people in education. And then I'm reading from like activists and whatever. So some of the laws that they passed for like anti-CRT are now like the anti-gender stuff. And they're calling them book bannings, but someone like Robert Pondisio, I don't know if you know who he is or if you've read any. yeah. And I mean, he's been writing a lot about education and he's, he put out something really very recently, but like schools and school boards deciding what goes into schools or even government coming out saying what goes into schools is something that's been going on for hundreds of years. It's not necessarily banning books. It's how much time do you have to teach the material? Now you can disagree with their opinion and you can disagree with their reasoning, but to call it a book banning is, is ridiculous. And I, I I think that some of this, like using some of these terms, you know, a book like okay though the one that they talk about a lot about is genderqueer taking a book like genderqueer out of a public school library like a grade school library right so k through six type of thing is not the same as you know jackbooted thugs going into your house taking your books and bringing it out and burning them in the town square yeah so i i think we have to dif- differentiate between things like that so i know you don't really focus too much on the K through 12 because that's a different set of laws than than like universities and stuff, but yeah. Like, would you mind like discussing like, like book banning as opposed to school making curriculum change?
1: Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, me and Bonnie, um, Bonnie Snyder and um, Adam Goldstein and Ryan Weiss, we, we all wrote something, um, like a 6000 word piece um called 13 things you need to know about like the divisive concepts debate um which which last year was the most popular thing on the fire website and i think it's for, for this very reason that it was um a serious nonpartisan attempt um to uh um uh, to evaluate the 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 divisive concepts uh laws and, you know, I made the point that I made earlier that applied to higher education, um, with some exceptions, uh, these laws are unconstitutional. And the, ex- the exceptions I'm thinking of are like North Carolina's law, which banned um, compelled speech, uh, making people mouth with ideas they don't agree with, which is perfectly constitutional. Not only is it constitutional, it's something that's required by the Great Barnett decision. When it comes to K through twelve, um, you know, as, as wrongheaded as you might think some of these laws are, um, they're uh, it's constitutional. Um, the, I, I, I point out, you know, to 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 the distress of 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 um, some people, want me to be more sort of like appeasing um, that the argument that. Um, legislatures and democratic process should have no effect on what K through 12 teaches is an argument against public funding of, of 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 public education against mandatory attendance of public education um and so yeah like th- th- those are um those laws applied to K through 12 curriculum are constitutional it gets a little more complicated when you talk about um uh, K-12 uh, uh, libraries. And the reason why it's a little more complicated with K-12 libraries is because that's considered to be more like the free speech rights of the students in question. And so j- just to break it down really simply, in K-12, um, the free speech rights of teachers is considered to be very weak. And, and it actually makes a fair amount of sense, particularly if you do have this idea that you know democratic um, forces should actually have some say in what people's kids um, get taught. Um, the strongest free speech rights in K-12 are parents and students themselves. Uh, and when you have something that looks more like a limitation on what students can read or say, then some extra considerations come in, particularly due to the PICO decision, um, which was a 1983, I think, decision saying that banning um, banning books just on the on, on their viewpoint is unconstitutional. Sorry. Sorry requiring K 12 libraries to remove books just because politicians don't like the viewpoint expressed in them um is arguably unconstitutional however part of that decision um and it's been pretty much recognized um that uh um that age appropriateness is of course something that could still be considered so when it comes to things like like um gender queer which you has a has a picture of a um of one of the main characters uh performing oral sex on a on a strap-on um that do I think that uh that any court in the country would say that a legislature can say that that needs to be excluded on the basis of age appropriateness i I think that every court would um be on the side of of the uh, of the legislature that decided that this wasn't age appropriate. and meanwhile, of course, they can get these visa- at Local bookstores, they can get this at the public library. There's all sorts of different ways that they they can get uh, 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 this material. But when it comes to um, you know To Kill a Mockingbird or books that are uh, that are removed from K through 12, just because. Um, politicians don't like the viewpoint. Then there still is a good claim there, but people have to remember that nothing took out the role of age appropriateness. And when you when you're focusing on some of these books, um, I, I think that you know courts would uphold uh, legislatures that say rem, you know remove these most controversial ones. And meanwhile, that's one of the reasons why this discussion can be frustrating is because the two sides are like completely talking past each other. That that essentially, when I see people on the right, they're mostly focused at some at things like gender queer. Meanwhile, people on the left. Are defending it, saying, you know, pointing out some of the more ridiculous books that have been banned, um, which is fair, which which is entirely fair, but just trying to sort of completely ignore the fact that there are books that um, would arguably be bannable under age appropriateness.
0: Yeah. And I mean, like, okay, some of these things, um, because I remember seeing a picture of Gavin Newsom with a pile of books in front of him saying, oh, I'm reading these books for Banned Book Week. And a couple of the books that were in that stack were actually banned in California. Like I believe, oh, which books I believe 1984 was. Oh, really? Yeah. So, and the, the, so I have to go back and take a look at the picture. Cause this was about six or seven months ago, but I, I remember a lot of people calling this out and yeah, kill mockingbird was on there and things like that. But I've, I've been seeing this for, like I said, I keep calling them over corrections because it keeps coming back and forth to, to like, these kind of things. And like, Going back to the anti CRT laws or whatever you want to call them, like I, I didn't read the one from North Carolina, but I read a few of them, and the one in Idaho I thought was the best one I'd read because all it did was, and I believe it was Idaho, it just reiterated state statewide and federal civil rights laws and said uh-huh. you can't teach anything that goes against these laws. Which I think, fine, you're just you know buttressing those laws, great. But my look at, on that was okay. These are overcorrections. Nothing was done. Like you started seeing this stuff again. I started following it. And I started paying attention to what was going on in K through twelve. And I believe in 2018, there were 16 states that were having some form of CRT-based curriculum from K through 12. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, okay, I'm like, okay, I agree with John McWhorter that this is a religion. And yep. I'm like, you've got, you know, you've got a, a race version of intelligent design coming through school curriculum now, and you, you need to get it out. Um, so when I saw all these laws coming in and people were freaking out and you know, I agree with them on, on certain aspects of it, but I'm like, you know what you're looking like if I was a parent and I was told, okay, yes, this racial stuff that's being taught in schools is illegal because it goes against the civil rights act. But then these laws that are coming in are also illegal and they're going to need to be sued. If I was a parent, I'm like, you know what, I'll take the stuff that's illegal, but is not teaching my kid to be a racist as opposed to the stuff that's illegal and is teaching my kid to be racist. Mm-hmm. So I can see where these overcorrections are coming in from. and Well, you know,
1: th- and that's been one of the interesting, one of the po- points that we really tried to make is we we tried to actually, you know, um, in that large article and, and in Cancelling of the American Mind is to show what the laws actually say, because because some of it, uh, one of the great ironies on, on the ones that are most uh, written most clearly to reflect existing um, anti-discrimination laws is that they sound very much like something that the founders of CRT, uh, people like Richard Delgado and Mary Matsuda, very much supported in the 1980s. They just don't like it's being used in a way that they don't approve of.
0: Yeah, um, You'd mentioned uh, coddling the American mind, and I, wondered, I was hoping we could talk about that. Now, sure. again, I read, I mean, it was a great book. And you know, I've also spoken with uh, Lenore Skinazzi a while ago. I mean, everyone seems to be going around saying, okay, well, this is a silver bullet. We need to fix education. We need to fix this. We need to fix that. And I was kind of like an outsider just looking at all this stuff. And, you know, I was never any kind of pundit or anything like that. And I just come in and I'm like, well, like the problem is so much bigger than just education. Yeah. Like like when I like reading, uh, you know, the coddling and then speaking to Lenore about what's going on with little kids and stuff. It's like, not only are you not raising kids to be, anti-fragile you know to, to take uh Nassim Taleb's term there like but you're also taking you're you're limiting parents like parents have to be helicopter parents now like I mean if you let your little kid go to the park across the street you, you potentially have your neighbors calling you know child protective services on you yeah and and so parents don't have the time to go through curriculum parents don't have the time to see what their kids are doing parents don't have the time to like Discuss things amongst themselves, and at the same point, you're depriving kids of. If you let kids make up their own choices, if you let have them, you know, run some, give them enough rope. Maybe if there was a book like Gender Queer in the school library, they would think ah, I don't need to read this, and you know, they can kind of make up their own minds. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, like I know you've done a couple of series on Twitter about like revisiting the coddling of the American mind and seeing how things are going, like. Frankly, I see things getting worse and worse since that oh, yeah. came out, and I just, just like wondering, like, what do you think it's going to take for people to like wake out of their slumber? Like, because, like I said, it's it's a multitude of things here.
1: Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's funny because I, I remember when we were writing, when we were finishing up, Coddling the American mind, and we, you know, we tried to end on an optimistic note um, when neither of us felt particularly optimistic, um, and we thought things were going to get worse. I don't think either of us thought it would get quite this worse, this much worse, this quickly. Um, but uh, definitely, we thought things were going to get worse before they got better. Um, canceling the American mind is is, uh, is going to be a, a little different in a lot of ways. Not the least of which is we tr- we tried to have no villains in canceling the American mind. But I do think that people who are still saying, and by the way, overwhelmingly upper class you know, highly educated white men um are, are are some of the most aggressive about this, that cancel culture isn't even a real thing. Um is like, okay, no, I, I think that uh people should not take you seriously anymore if that's if that's your main message. Um the uh and what it what is it gonna take? Um I don't know. The, the uh I, I I think that what I'm afraid of, and I, I wrote a long, a, a long article for Reason Magazine that uh, I think it was like the January issue or something like that, and I called it the um, second great age of political correctness, partially being intentionally using using a term that um, some people find offensive, but making the point that you can't. <laughs> you can't let what terms you use be decided by the um uh, by the twitter scolds like they're they're, they're just going to want to make it something um that means that the majority of americans can't understand you anymore but in to in, in the 90s the um politically correct uh as, as the term was at the time sort of um ideology peaked on campus and then started to sort of um uh, be, be walked back uh that you know, PC became a joke in the larger society, the codes were defeated, Uh, professors became less enamored of speech codes, and the children of the baby boomers started hitting campus in large numbers, and they were very good on free speech. Um, And this led to a sense of like, whew, thank goodness that's over. And meanwhile, quietly, um, or not so quietly for those of us who worked at FIRE, things got much worse on campus. Um, actually, the number of speech codes increased. Uh, so by the time, I, as I mentioned earlier, we were talking about like more than two-thirds of schools had laughably unconstitutional speech codes, um, oftentimes identical to the ones that were defeated in the 80s eighties uh, and 90s, and that was overwhelmingly due to administrators. You had the increase of bias-related incident programs, um, you know, uh, which, which are now all, all over the country, and, and they allow for a much closer enforcement of orthodoxy uh, on American college campuses than, than speech codes ever, ever could have. Um, and the point there was just that if we, if if the fever breaks, and I think it's broken to some degree, if things are not as crazy as they were in 2020, um, which is unsustainable, then eventually people are going to be like, well, whew, thank goodness that's over and, and not have fixed the underlying problem. Um, it, it, it's just going to repeat the same cycle where it, it's like really crazy, really bad for the past, you know, uh, several years. And then uh, the media, it, not that the media has been paying good attention to this, uh, the people will take their eye off the ball and it's just going to be even worse in a shorter period of time. Like uh, uh, when we come back to this and in, in maybe another five years, it's time around, it's going to be even more entrenched, even crazier. So the answer is I don't entirely know um, what, what's going to make the difference. But I do think that um, rethinking how we do higher education in K-12 is is pretty important.
0: I mean, you bring up a, a point there that I've kind of said the same thing. Like the old, like you know, I remember the old PC stuff in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, we used to, I used to laugh about it because I heard some really stupid things. Like I heard, you know, we don't want to use waiter or waitress. We only use the word waitron. Uh, which is,
1: <laughs> was that was that was that a real one?
0: Yeah, that was a real one. I, it Waitron just, uh, it yeah. sounds like a like okay.
1: a transformer.
0: Well, because they wanted to be gender neutral, right? And they wanted to be politically correct. I see. But
1: wouldn't Waitron not be gender neutral? Wouldn't that be specifically female, like matron?
0: Uh, I, I, I look, man. It was, it was a lot of it was stupidity. But what you said there, were, oh, see, it's gone away. Yeah, it's the Like I'll, I'll give two examples of it. So was it 2015? Melissa Click. She was the what media and journalism professor at Mizzou. She called for muscle on a, a student reporter, and then she got fired. I mean, I, I don't want to you know get into the was she right to get fired, but everyone's like, oh, see the problem's fixed. I'm like, no, that should light alarm bells everywhere. Like, what's going on in journalism schools? If a teacher in a journalism school is calling for muscle on a journalist, what's being taught in journalism schools? Yeah, I thought I think the uh, you know the grievance studies affair that you know Helen Pluckrose and Pete Bogosian and James Lindsay did that should have you know strung alarm bells. Mm-hmm. And then the, another one that I think about that's more recent is right when the vaccines first came out for COVID and the CDC put out that recommendation that we think, oh, it should be done by race instead of, you know, who's most affected by it. And, you know, the next day they pulled it and everyone's like, oh, see, it's, it's all fixed. I'm like, but now you've got, you know, uh, university medical departments asking doctors to take a pledge to diversity instead of, you know, do no harm. I'm yeah. like, so... Is it like this, you know, like, are we so used to instantaneous results and everything through, like, the internet and Google and whatever that we think, oh, we'll see, we won, and there's no yeah. fight. And, it, like, have people lost the stomach for, like, long, drawn-out fights on this? I mean, I, I would...
1: Well, it's also the, the, the side that can change it you know, is very distracted about. Uh, and, and to be clear, I think genuinely scary things going on in the American right. Um, so I think there's reason to be distracted. Um, and they're not that prone to sort of self-reflection on some of this stuff anyway, because they think they're on the side of the angels. Um, and that's the thing that makes change so difficult is is the right is going to give them things to distract themselves with and, and, and be concerned about rightfully. And um, And meanwhile, kind of like on the left, there's limited patience for saying there's something wrong in higher education, like like something wrong in K through 12, because the way they frame it too often is just that, well, no, but these are, I mean, I mean, everyone here means well, everybody has good intentions, even if it's a little excessive. It's like, oh man, like, so yeah, so, so change, change is going to be, going to be difficult. I think also, um. Society needs to adapt to a world uh, like a, a social media world where I, I think, you know, Rob Henderson was getting at this point in his piece about why do adults care so much what kids think of them? Um, I think it's a larger kind of like, why do uh, thoughtful people care, you know, what Twitter thinks of them, for example. But it can create, you know, like an idea that kind of like, oh, my ideas are are, are, are very um, very unpopular um, when maybe they're only unpopular with a tiny fraction of the American public.
0: Uh, something you'd mentioned there about, okay, like a, when I came back and I saw all this stuff that was going on, I just like your okay, right, left, global, conservative, don't mean anything anymore. I yeah. just started jokingly calling myself an enlightenmentarian. I said, I support <laughs> the, the values of the enlightenment. Like Put it. me wherever you want on your political spectrum. This is what I support. But yeah, you were talking about the right and stuff, but there is my issue with, okay, take the Trump presidency. Yeah. There was so much focus. Like right when he got elected, there were a lot of people who said, oh, you know, there were some of the excesses on the left were part of the reason why people voted for Trump.
1: Oh, yeah. No, no. Okay. I, 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 and, I do I do think in a, in a very real sense. Okay. But a-
0: then all of a sudden, majority of those people just went all Trump all the time. Instead yeah. of trying to make their side more electable. And it's, like, I'm like, okay, in 2020, it took a, a pandemic, what Time Magazine called a cabal of, you know, tech and media and whatever to get together and try to, you know, push the election one way. I mean, it was, like I can't remember the, the exact quotes in the time article and then like crushing the Hunter Biden story to, you know, have Trump elected. I'm like, that's not a win for your side. You didn't make your side more electable. I keep going back to, um, uh, I mean, cause Hitchens, Hitchens used to bring this play up a lot. The, the man for all seasons, that scene where Thomas Moore asked Roper, like, are you willing to burn down all the laws in England to, you know, to catch a devil. And it's like, Yeah, I will. And that's where I look at what, quote unquote, the left has become Mm -hmm. like everything that used to protect you from the crazy has now itself become crazy. So you've got nowhere left to hide. Like, I mean, thank God for places like the fire, because the ACLU is, is a pale shadow of what it used to be, even just like three or four years ago, you know? And it's like, what do you have left to defend yourself against the nuttiness from other sides?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. Now I, I, I think about the, the sort of like lost opportunity for Republicans because the uh there, there's a guy named Alan Lickman, um, who teaches at uh at American University who um you know has a pretty um uh, Byzantine, no, no, not Byzantine, it's unfair. He has a pretty complicated equation to figure out who's going to win each election, like who, who, who's, whose side was it on? And I actually went into 2016 assuming that since incumbency is so powerful that it would actually be likely that Hillary would win, and I didn't bother to check in with Alan Lichtman himself, who was like, no, this was the Republicans' year to lose for a number of different f- factors in his equation. And I think that if the Republicans, uh, since incumbency is very strong um, and it, it takes a lot to be an incumbent president who loses – um, that if it had been any other president, like if the Republicans had chosen literally anybody else, they would have easily had a two, uh, like a, a two timer. Um, and I and I think you're right. On the left, meanwhile, the lesson is like, well, we don't have to change anything. And it's like, eh. but at the same time, you know, the the, the fact that they ran, I, I do have to remember though, like, and and uh, this was very clear, the, the the fact that they ultimately went with Biden was uh, w- was clear that they knew they had to go with their most sort of um, center appealing candidate that they had. Meanwhile, when I talked to I feel like the next closest was probably Buttigieg and they I talked to people, you know, um in this town uh, who are also democrats and there's like, "Oh, well, no, he's he, he's unelectable." Like because he's too he's too centrist and it's like, "Okay, um we
0: got a problem." <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. Thank you very much for coming on, but if you want to give a last you know, plea for you know, the culture of free speech, not so much the laws, like sure. why it's important, because I mean, like this is something I try to talk to my friends about, whatever, and it's just, you know, it's always the safety thing that comes up on my end. It's like, oh, we have to protect people.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I think the be- the best defense of freedom of speech is simply that it works very well, and it tells you where your problems are, um, and it lets you Uh, be grounded in the world as it actually is. And I think right now, the more you censor, the less accurate your picture of the world um, becomes. And and I think that that can lead to some real horrible downstream, uh, uh, downstream disasters um and i think you should and and, I, and if i could you know preach one virtue for for, for americans right now it's curiosity uh, a curiosity about your fellow citizens try to figure out what they really think where they're really coming from without that idea that you know they're either stupid or evil it, I, and it was it was kind of um utterly predictable but also heartbreaking to watch when the new york times um chastened by the uh by the election of Trump was like you know what we need to add people like Barry Weiss and um uh and uh, James Bennett to uh, to uh the New York Times to, to to get us better in touch with the with the rest of the country and then as soon as it actually tried to do articles about you know um uh right-wing extremists, it was treated as normalizing white white ring uh, extremism when it was actually trying to figure out where they were coming from, not normalizing it in uh, in, uh, in any sense. Um, and I, and there, and uh, as you know, James Bennett and Barry Weiss are now, are are now long gone. So I do think that, uh, and I, and I think that once you, you, you send that message that we don't really want to know what, what the, uh, even the worst of the other side looks like, it's putting you on, on a road to, uh, um, to disaster, I guess, which is not the most inspiring way to. (laughs) I'll talk the high value of free speech, but I, but I do think that we, we badly need it. And even more than we think we do, uh, right now. Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I look around, I mean, but again, in Canada, it's just, we're having the inquiry into the emergencies act. And I mean, I, like I was out in Vancouver a little while ago and I was speaking to some friends out there and I, you know, I live in Montreal. So it's like whatever 3000 miles away. And that convoy that came into Ottawa, speaking to people in Vancouver who only watched media and only watched certain media, it's like their perception of it is so wrong. And I'm like, well, these inquiries are going on. They're speaking to people. It's like, you know, someone will come up and say, Oh, Uber eats, wouldn't deliver in Ottawa during the convoy. And then you have people coming on saying, here are all my receipts from Uber eats during the convoy. And I live like right downtown Ottawa and they were coming, delivering to my place. So it's, Sorry, I don't want to drag. It's like the polarization, like they're purposely making their polarization worse because they're siling themselves off into these little, you know, little bubbles of, okay, I'm only going to listen to this. And I mean, okay, don't get me wrong. The other side of it too, I had friends in Vancouver who were telling me about how, these people who had the largest ivermectin factory in the world were killed just two weeks before COVID became a pandemic. And this, and I'm like, okay, you know, the conspiracy theories on both sides have to stop. They're they're getting a little nutty here. Uh, But yeah, it's just like, my whole thing is you're not going to get, you're not going to know what's going on. Conspiracy theories are going to spread like wildfire. And if you want a reasonable, rational world, you need to have that speech. You need to allow even the speech you find the most distasteful. You know, yep. I, I, that's my take on it. Well, once again, thank you very much, Greg. It was great talking to you. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, where they can get a hold of FIRE, and I'll put like the links in the description.
1: Sure. Yeah. um is a uh, fire's email address. And I am G. Lukianoff, if you can spell my last name um, on Twitter. Uh, and yeah. And the, the, the name of the book uh, was coddling the American mind, but the next book is going to be canceling the American mind. Cause I'm incredibly creative.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks a lot again. It was great talking to you.
1: Absolutely. Take care. Thanks. Good thanks. You.
0: thanks everyone for listening.